Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a more livable, beautiful, and healthy built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of the Aesthetic City. Today's guest is an accomplished architect with an intriguing history. While studying architecture in Delft, the Netherlands, he was part of a group that built a counter project as it offered more and cheaper student rooms on the same piece of land. He graduated with a counter design for The Hague's Urban Renewal Practice, which included a neoclassical educational science museum. At the diploma ceremony, his design was referred to as patricide. Since 1982, he has been working on counter projects for residence groups, which eventually grew into an architectural firm specializing in restoration and public housing. In 1989, he began collaborating with Mieke Bosse under the name Scala Architects. So please welcome Peter Drijver. Welcome, Peter. Uh, happy to have you here. Yes, glad to be here. You came all the way from The Hague. So, Peter, maybe a little bit about your background. Uh, first of all, you also studied at Delft of Technology back in the past. Um, yeah. Yes, of course. And um, when we finished our exams in 1982... Um, we actually won a prize for our final design. Our final oh. design coped with the the redesign of the urban renewal in a part of The Hague, the city in which I live. Yeah. And um, we more or less uh, made a scheme that was based on the original traditional uh, fabric. And um, we did a, a small science museum in the middle of it. And... At the time, that design was considered as uh, the murder on our fathers and the murder <laughs> on our on our uh, professors, since we um, more or less um, have had uh, discovered traditional architecture as one of the offsprings of the postmodern movement of the seventies. Wow, because that was happening just uh, before or during you were studying, probably the the postmodern movement. Mm, or yes, that was happening when we finished our exams. Yeah. Yes, and um, of course we did. We were trained as as modernist architects, as everybody uh, as, as everybody was. Yeah. In in that period, but in 1977, when architectural design was published, its uh, edition on the La Villette uh, um, contest. With the design by Leon Creer, we were more or less uh, flabbergasted about, the, let's say, the pleasure of drawing and the pleasure of architecture that it displayed, and it also displayed the whole new, uh, the whole new vision that a designer could have on urban design, building design, and um, let's say the way he engages with the public. Yeah, yeah, because and it must have been, yeah. Well, it was a shock for your for your professors that you chose this direction but how how did you uh, get to this direction how did you come up with doing this project and we mostly got got there because at the time we were activists in the student union and we mm. exploited a bookstore in the middle of the f faculty of architecture yeah. and we promoted let's say books we like yeah. in that bookstore and we had all the books that were published by AAM the, yeah. the editing company by uh, Culot. Uh, so all mm -hmm. books by Leon Creer and Maurice Culot uh, published oh, wow. and yeah. sold there. Yeah, so so Leon Creer was already active at that moment? Yes. Yeah. Uh, did he already write pamphlets or I'm not really familiar um, with his early work? Yes, at, the, at that time he was uh, involved with Maurice Culot in, in Brussels, uh, yeah. in Arau. Um, Maurice was the, the head of the Faculty of Architecture of La Cambre and uh, Leon um, worked there as a, as a professor and um, they did both projects with students that were uh, used by, um, let's say, the local politics against the, the, let's say, the disasters in Brussels to uh, tear whole uh, areas down yeah. and make way for uh, office blocks and uh, highways. Yeah, the Brusselization. Uh, yes, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Oh. And uh, being at being activists in the in the student union, mm -hmm. we we liked very much that the fact the fact that there's a that they were more or less a paradigm for uh, a designer that um, could do his profession and as well uh, be an activist or an engaged designer. Yeah. 
So, uh, and you finished your project, um, and then you directly started uh, working, or how how did it? In nineteen eighty two, we had a we had a crisis, of course. Yeah. Uh, every ten years, there's a crisis, and there was no no employment whatsoever. So we started an office on our own without any work, and we did a lot of projects for organizations of inhabitants in various uh, areas. Yeah, that you became a traditional architect. Is it true that it, it didn't start with fascination for traditional architecture per se, but out of a necessity and out of activism in a way, and yeah. A bi- build, building a house or building a street or building an area is something that you don't do for yourself. Yeah. When you make a chair on your room, you, in, in your room, you do it for yourself. But if you make something public as a public space or, or houses where other people will live and get their children and raise them, yeah, it's a totally different sports. And I think you cannot just cope with your very individual ideas or feelings to give that form yeah and as we studied the since 1969 the university of delft was taken over by modernist professors and the modernist professors more or less kicked out the traditional professors that were that were hanging ar- around since the 50s yeah. and in the 50s let's say tra- traditional architecture more or less bloomed in the uh, reconstruction of various uh, cities and small villages around the Netherlands after the damage of the World War. Yeah. But halfway the 50s, Jaap Bakema, a social democrat architect, more or less kicked out the traditional architects on a, on, on not a very elegant manner. And mm-hmm. in the late 60s, on the university he more or less did the same with the professors that were still, still around. So from 1969 on, it was hardly possible to get a traditional training. Yeah. And the traditional architects that taught there were moved over to the to the, the branch of restoration. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's just something for the past, it's not something for the future. Yeah. And that's more or less the status where the school is still in. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> it's just I was there in 2013, 14, 15, and 2017 graduated. But yeah, it's I think well, one of the tracks nowadays yeah. is restoration. Uh, yeah. But yeah. so the traditionists were kicked out. But I can imagine because, of course, well, modernism was what's well, not necessarily a new thing, but it was a different paradigm. Like before modernism, Traditional architecture was just architecture, not traditional architecture, but just architecture, right? Yes, and traditional architecture is is uh, should be, in my opinion, should be a very wide thing because yeah. it includes a lot and it excludes just a small bit. Yeah, and if you look at the the Dutch tradition of of building in villages and cities. You can see that there's a clear difference between an area from the 19th century or an area from the 18th century or an area from the early 20th century. And on their own, they're all more or less traditional areas that are more or less built upon the traditions of the former areas the city already has. But there's not a very bland breach between them. So yeah, it's when you end up in some area of, of, of the Netherlands, of a city, you always can tell where the center is because you know where in, in what direction to walk. Yeah. yeah. And if so, you can, you can compare it to, the, to, let's say, a tree where you have different year rings and where you know where the center is, you know where the outskirts are and you know what to expect when you come nearer to the city yeah. center. Yeah. But, but the funny thing is that um, because there is modernism, uh, the concept of traditional architecture got meaning. Or is that not really the case? Did they already realize it was... I, th- yeah. I think modernism more or less didn't care about the city because the, yeah. the modernism lost the idea of the city in the first place. Yeah. It's just about, let's say, objects on a table. It's, it's a glass, it's a vase, it's a bottle, mm-hmm. and they're all standing on a table. And uh, there's nothing in between. And the traditional city, uh, in whatever style, is not, not important, but the tra- traditional city is a city of streets and squares and parks and etc. Yeah. 
and the form of every public space more or less asks for certain architectural means. And so there's a certain dependency on the urban form and the architectural form. Yeah. Before we go down that rabbit hole a bit too far, because it's super interesting, I'm, I'm also thinking now about the inability nowadays to create real urban fabric and that we, in my opinion, since maybe I'm overlooking some parts of the Netherlands, but after Plan Zuid in Amsterdam South, I'm not sure if we have ever created a true urban part of a city anymore um, that feels and functions as a real extension of a city. I'm not sure if you can call one, like because the, the Western garden cities in Amsterdam, they don't function the same. Uh, the same is with no. a lot of other areas. No, um, the, the yeah. No, those those Western garden cities are just garden cities. So so it's a it's a, a habitat and it's not a city. And yeah. there's 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 not much variety in yeah. the urban atmosphere, nor in it in its inhabitants. Yeah. And if you would have a more urban feel, you would have a great difference between the people who live there and the way yeah. they uh, they communicate with each other. Yeah. Do you think it's it's true that that like Blanzuid was more or less the last real urban extension Amsterdam has had, or maybe even from any other cities, or did something get built in the 50s somewhere which still had the... Yes, I'm convinced. And as we speak in Middelburg, they are going to tear down the houses that architect uh, Briette built mm -hmm. uh, that are, I th to my, in my humble opinion, very ex exquisite, neat, simple houses that yeah. uh, have a very nice feel and they're built for uh, very little money in the 50s and I think it's appalling that they are taking the yeah. taking them down because I think if you don't have much money as we have now yeah and if mm. you don't have much space if as we have now I think these houses are a, a very good paradigm for let's say the small families and the small one person households we have to provide houses full in a very neat nice comfortable urban form yeah C could you describe those houses a bit like they're like dutch row houses or a bit uh the, the dutch row houses but and and some of them uh, there are some bent streets there it's, oh yeah. it's very very nice it's it's a, a kind of a traditional is it a part of the the ancient city center of middelburg no, which no, was no. bombed or no it's on, on on more or less on the outside on the outside okay middelburg's not very big no yeah I think let's park this subject for a little bit and, and return a little bit to the to the background of Scala Architecture because you set it up with your wife in the early 80s. Yes. Um, and yeah, how was it like to run one of those, uh, well, extremely rare traditional firms in those times where modernism was, well, basically the only thing that was... Yeah. Well, yeah. in the 80s, the big question mark in our profession, of course, was urban renewal, what to do with urban renewal. And yeah. um, lots of friends of ours from the university, they practiced in The Hague and Amsterdam and Rotterdam um, at the city. And what they strived for was um, complete rubbish because they wanted to make modern buildings out of existing 19th century streets. And to do so, they skipped the roofs, they skipped the cornices, and they skipped the decorated windows and they painted the brick buildings white. Yeah. But if you do so, it's still a box with vertical windows. And a box with vertical windows is not something Le Corbusier or Matstom would do. <laughs> so you end up with a lot of shit and you've lost, let's say, a very nice street with houses that have a very that would need a, a paint job. Yeah. And it's it's neither real modernism nor is it traditional. No. It's in the middle. It, you yeah. end up with a lot of rubbish and plastic. Yeah, yeah. And I think here there's a lot of that, like kind of white buildings with. Yeah, it's that, <laughs> that was an, there was a disease in the eighties. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of those buildings were done actually quite bad. So they have terrible mold problems there, and after yeah. too many mold problems, they just tear them down nowadays. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's a it, it's a fast way to to lose your nineteenth century buildings. Yeah, and um, so that's one thing. And the main thing is that if you work on projects in urban renewal, you learn more or less what's hidden in the existing building. And it's yeah. my opinion that if you 
meet a building that's older than a hundred years, yeah. and you you cannot understand why it's built or how it's built, and when you analyze it, you end up with lots of hidden clues why it still exists. So, actually, everything that's uh, that's still there is worth investigating because it has a a certain knowledge or a certain know-how yeah. in it, how it can survive in the first place. Yeah. Like solidified knowledge. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And, okay, so you were active in, in urban renewal. Um, and so you were able to do things differently then in that time. Uh, yes, and when you do urban renewal, you know that you only have a small project in a bigger area in a certain context. And yeah. if you have a small piece of a context, what you would like to do is to strengthen the context and not to blow it up. Yeah. So if you want to make your building, let's say, serving to that context, you should more or less analyze the context and you should also be aware of where the pro problems are. There could be problems, for instance, with the, the commercial areas in, in a 19th century area, or there could be other problems with the, the, pe the people who came out to live there. Yeah. And you should uh, address those problems in order to keep the, uh, the community intact And you're not going to change it just by adding, let's say, a modernist icon. No. That's not a solution. Yeah. We had to study the, the Oude Norde yeah. in, in Rotterdam. And we were, I don't know, we, we were to redesign the public space. Uh, and we got some, some course about the city at eye level. So there was already some awareness of the context trying to be instilled in us. But... We didn't get any of the other instruments to <laughs> to yes. design it, yeah, and and really be context sensitive. Like we had to be, but on the other hand, like you couldn't do traditional stuff. Well, you could do so, but nobody ever taught anything traditional, so no. it wouldn't even come up in your mind. From the eighties on, we bought a tremendous amount of old books, and we read a lot a lot about it, and we studied a lot of houses and and, yeah. and building buildings just to to get more grasp on let's yeah. say building technology or architectural composition because if you're trained as a modernist you uh, yeah. it's it's easy to understand the modernist building and to do modernist building but yeah. if you want to design a more traditional 19th century or 17th century uh, addition to a building yeah that's more difficult and there are certain rules and although th those rules are not as concrete as yeah. they often are presented, you still have to know these rules in order in, in your pencil in order to, to to do something with it. So this this self study did you already do this during your time in university, or was that when you started your own firm? Uh, and how many others were doing this? Uh, not many, uh, at least not many people we knew from our faculty did that and um, yeah. because most of them had a jolly good time doing modernist buildings and they still do yeah and we started collecting those books and reading those books i think from up from 1978 yeah yeah so before we finished school yeah really early have you ever had any during your time at scala architects or also already in university had any Interactions with modernists, like or confrontations, which yes. are funny experiences. One <laughs> funny sure. experience: our, we were commissioned by ProRail to do the supervising work for the Hanslein, which is a railway connection between Almere and Zwolle. Yeah. And for that railway line, there was one tunnel built, one huge bridge near Zwolle, and a lot of crossings with with rail, with roads. Yeah. And a tremendous amount of baffles to get the sound of the train low. Yeah. Um, and we did the supervising. We did a supervising job, and we we first did away with lots of problems. ProRail ended up with building two other railway lines that were done in a very modernist design matter. So the the live wire for the trains was was yeah. built on poles with a specific design. Curved, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. And on the dikes where, where the railroad is. 
there was a certain mix of certain flowers and not all flowers. And the railway stations were usually built, but they were invisible as the emperor's clothes. Um, <laughs> and they existed of glass and a stair and a freestanding elevator. That's a, that's the railway station. Yeah, a couple of boxes. Kind of. Yes, yeah. and we did away with all that. And what we promoted, um, let's say, that if would there would be a railway station, there would be um, a building that could be pointed at as that being the railway station. Yeah. It should be made of brick because it's in an urban context and all the flyovers for uh, cars and the railroad would be in urban areas, would be clad with brick. And we promoted a family of high-tension boxes for the railroad that more or less addressed the same uh, language as they were designed in the in the early 50s by Van Laafstein. Yeah. And um, they were also clad in brick. And when we promoted that, we first used an illustration of a railway station with a pitched roof. And then I was asked to come to the Rijksbouwmeester <laughs> because that would not going to happen. <laughs> so <laughs> there, was a, there was a certain state control about what could be done and what not cannot be done in our country. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, so police. It's, it's really, so it's kind of a design police from a national level. Yes. Say. Is that still the case? Probably. Probably. Yeah, then I directly wonder what would be needed to, to change such a thing, because, yeah. Re revolution. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's go with the Scandinavian architecture uprising. Yes. But uh, that's an interesting story. It's a long road. It's a long yeah. road. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost a bit scary when you hear how high the stakes are for some people. Um, yes, and yeah. but you can also imagine that if in the 50s the traditional architects were kicked out of their jobs yeah. by Bakema, and the same Bakema kicked out the last traditional uh, professors in Delft in the late 60s, um, we now have 50 years of architectural students and professors who don't know shit about the discipline so they yeah. don't they work in a profession as professionals but they do it with very little uh, knowledge about their discipline and the first thing you have to address is the lack of discipline and the lack of knowledge yeah because it's one type of construction it's one type of detailing it's one type of low-bearing constructions um yeah concrete steel no, and it's, no it's, it's not that solid because there's a there's a lot of innovation and uh, if you look at the, the preposterous building mvnf did here which is in old magazines now the, the so valley or yes yeah uh, so probably it will be in the netherlands copied in a hun hundred times smaller scale in small towns yeah. but that's a it's a, a preposterous scheme and it's it has ridiculous problems of load bearing construction and you have to address them all and it's very costly to address all those things but nevertheless they get away with it yeah and yesterday i heard mass tell something about his urban schemes he's doing for almira mm -hmm. and it's quite ridiculous because he doesn't know shit about what urbanism is let's say on the longevity that urbanism should have because it's more or less the outline for the next 500 years yeah and he's still thinking of urbanism as a theme park and he thinks of 50 shades of a green theme park and that's his vision for an extension area of a city i think it's ridiculous yeah. Yeah. And it's bland because he, he lacks any knowledge about what he is doing. Yeah. I find it most concerning that the people who are supposed to be experts are so far away from the people who actually live in the cities and their opinions and their views, and that they are so different. And also the fact that people accept it and then also still dare to enjoy, live in, use the same traditional architecture that that is being denied and not being built. Uh, yes, uh, but yeah. the problem is that Jane Jacobs promoted it more than 60 years ago. Yeah. And probably all those are, all those architects and or urbanists <laughs> yeah. would have would have a copy somewhere and hidden away in the box. Yeah. 
but she said it all. It's all there. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to invent anything new. All the knowledge is here. Yes, and if you have a proper engagement as an intellectual standing in the society of today, you would choose a side, and that would be the side of the people that will be living there, will be having children there and do their jobs there and will be happy there or cry yeah. there, whatever, or die there. Yeah. Because that's what the city is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it shapes the conditions for living a good life or a bad life. <laughs> yes, and, yeah. and as a designer, you asked for a certain professional modesty. Yeah, yeah. So about modesty and also about the valley, uh, for the listeners who don't know, this is a building in Amsterdam uh, in the financial district built by MVRDV, the famous Dutch architecture firm, and just Google the valley, you'll find it. And it's some sort of set of three towers with glass on the outside and a kind of a rock face on the inside. I think that is as far from form follows function as you could get. I'm not sure how... Function follows form. Yeah. (laughs) I would say yeah so how did the kind of the modernist ideology or school of thought drift so far away from its original premises i'm not sure whether it was andre breton or laszlo mohlinaj that promoted in the 20s the automatic writing and the idea was that on one side of the telephone Somebody would say up, left, right, etc. And on the other side of the telephone, that was way before the fax machine, let's say apart from the internet. And the on, the, on the other side of the telephone, a guy with a pencil would do what the other guy was telling on the other side of the line. And that would result in true art. I would say if you look at the valley, it's sculpture for form because it's, it's, a, it's a cube with a piece of sliced, sliced out. And on the outside, it has a cladding. And on the inside, it has a cladding. That's it. So as a design, as a concept, that's not a hell of a job. It's a hell of a job to do to do the, the engineering, which is not done by the architect, of course, but it's done by an engineering office. And there's a hell of a job to do the cost control. And it's a hell of a job to get all those houses in with the, the sewers and the electricity and the whole shit. So... Yeah. Um, the, the profession of the architect is not very much there. It's, de- it's just design. Yeah, it's kind of uh, giving an image. and, and Yes, yeah. but I would say it, w- it would do nice on a table with uh, some, some tulips in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah it would work as a vase. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. It's, yeah. Um, not to talk about the urbanism because I've, I've been there recently and it's just like you're walking this glass facade that's also one of the biggest lies i believe about uh, glass as something transparent <laughs> oh yes transparency is so important transparency yeah <laughs> it's uh, l- let's not go into that uh, no. topic it's a glass it's just a, a tank for a shark yeah let, let alone any other qualities um so uh, what have you been your f- favorite projects you do- you've done with uh, you've done with scala architects the fav- well, the favorite projects are the project that or more or favorite, less yeah. uh, caused a stir, I would say. Yeah. And um, one of them being in Freeswijk, mm-hmm. uh, that was, a, a, let's say, a modernist scheme where we did the social housing on the inside of a block. Yeah. And since it was on the inside of a block, nobody cared. And since it was not seen from the outside, nobody cared. <laughs> and we did traditional houses there in, on, on a more or less elevated traditional pedestrian street. Yeah. So we would we hoped to to have a, a very normal, 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 normal atmosphere, nothing in particular. And when it was built, it was it was very popular among the people th- that got to live there. It was uh, yeah. built for a housing company, social housing, and part of it was was actually sold because it was so popular. And because when it turned out that it was very popular, there was a, a second phase where other traditional working architects added a, a traditional small harbor. Yeah. So that would be one, and the other one would be in the Hague, where we there was a. During the occupation, they tore a lot down. Was a lot was torn down by the Nazis in order to make a a defense belt against Mm -hmm. the Allies from the sea. 
And after the war, it was uh, more or less reconstructed in a modernist manner. But there are, there are always parts that were more or less crumbled and uh, mm-hmm. that exist of a, a collision of the old buildings and the, the new buildings. And on the brink of those two, we did uh, a reconstruction of a street with two building types that used to be there, but not on that particular spot. Yeah, And that ended up in a street which is perfectly normal and you you cannot imagine that it's, let's say, new. And yeah. one of the rows has a car park below and you cannot tell that there's yeah. a car park below. So it, it more or less illustrates as a manifest that if you want to do things properly, you maybe you cannot do it uh, 100%, but you can get pretty far if you want yeah. to. So we Is that the one with the arches? With the yes. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the most beautiful projects as well. <laughs> it looks really nice. A lot of detail and a lot of brick. Yes. Yeah. And we had some, some special bricks made to do the, the arches and, uh, and capitals below. Yeah. And the problem is that it's very generally felt that you cannot build um, uh, traditional forms anymore because our techniques are not that sophisticated. Mm-hmm or stupid, and the people that uh, we have lack of the builders who uh, who can do it, yeah, which is not the case, and it's not it doesn't comply to modern energy standard, but it can, and it doesn't comply with modern housing regulations considering uh, building height and mm-hmm. uh, uh, sizes, but it all can be done. Yeah, so we more or less promoted it as something to as a showcase that yeah. it's all possible. Yeah, the whole problem is that certain people don't want it to happen, and those people work in the city hall. Yeah, that's a massive problem. Um, I'm also thinking about one of your projects in uh, Almere, where you built basically. Uh, I, I think it looks like a like a city block from the Hague almost. It's in the one of the newer parts. Mm-hmm. And it has all these brick details and ornaments or different use of colors. So red brick and then some yellow accents. Yeah. Uh, and I think it it makes that area feel a little bit like a proper city <laughs> because it's the only block that does that. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that was a, a very strange uh, development because they had a, an urban scheme built of blocks and they had very strong references to, let's say, Amsterdam, Zuid or, or those areas where you have strong urban form strong blocks, green on the inside, parking on the inside, and you would have a commercial street with the shops and workshops on the ground floor level, which is which sounds all very urban. But during the process, it turned out that the whole dimensioning of the streets and the parking and the sizes of the blocks was completely wrong. Mm. And we were at the time in the first phase, and in the second phase, they altered it and in the third phase they decided to leave the urban scheme for what it was and they just gave out the ground to people to build their own house (laughs) so it's a a completely messed up area yeah yeah you literally have a a wooden chalet there yes (laughs) and we uh, at first we tried to let's say uh correct the size of the blocks and and the sizes of the streets but there was no possibility because there was an urban designer committed from the city planning office and there was a supervisor who lacked any knowledge. But yeah, that's what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. Concerning the, the resistance against traditional architecture and you live in The Hague, perhaps switch to the next subject, which is SOS The Hague, which is an organization that tries to protect the Hague's livability, its cityscape, its heritage, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Could you tell a bit about it? And, yeah. um, with a group of the Council of European Urbanism, we visited uh, SOS Paris once. Okay. And mm-hmm. um, it was an extremely nice group of people. And the, the Tresorier, there was a guy from, uh, from The Hague, actually. They combined, let's say, what Arau did in the 70s they, to design al- alternatives and with, let's say, proper 
city action of inhabitants and they also did a lot of they went to court to, just to to get their protests done yeah and i like it a lot because in our city you have a lot of civic organizations and but they don't really they are quite tame. So when an alderman or where the city city council is against them and they don't follow their advice, they just say, "Oh, that's a pity. That's a pity." Well, next time we do it better. Mm-hmm. But I think you're not. You shouldn't be th- that easily con- contented. You should bite through as as a mean dog. Yeah. So we try to be a mean dog. And what we do is actually a combination of, let's say, to compare what's laid out in, uh, let's say, the nice words of various pieces and uh, and texts the, the city council uh, has published on one side and what the uh, actual plans are on the other side. And since we're professionals, we can read drawings, we can uh, understand legal matters and uh, inhabitants most of the time cannot do so so we help them yeah and there are also some examples that are uh, don't have any reference to let's say the past or the tradition if you look at the city center they that the most of the streets in the city center were widened in the 20th century for the motor car yeah the motor car has been banished from the city center and it's it now has a, a double ring but the city center now has a lot of space that's empty space yeah of the where the motor car used to be and we published a plan to plant a huge amount of trees there as as lanes and to get and to do the pavement uh, to do away with a lot of pavement yeah more or less like, let's say, what you can imagine in the Tuileries or the Jardin de Luxembourg. Yeah. Um, just to get the heat of the cities out and get the rainwater in. Yeah. So it's a, it's a modern demand yeah. for urban space. It's a modern demand for, let's say, to make a better environment for the upper public space that people meet and people stay there longer. Yeah. And uh, that you have a more healthy environment in the future. Yeah. How did they receive that idea, or is it not yet done? Um, that idea was taken over by the city council. Mm, nice. Yeah. So we formed a special committee um, to guard the realization of it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is smart because you never know what. Uh, yes. They will do. Yeah. Nice. But it's very. Attra- it's very popular. So that is one of the biggest vic- victories, or other big. One yeah. one other big victory is that we now have a research on how it all went wrong with the cultural center that has been built because mm. it's yeah it's a terrible it's a terrible scheme. It was actually built. It was way over budget, and of course, public buildings are always over budget. That's what politicians always say. Yeah, we don't think that's logical. Yeah, because we ten years ago we started a campaign that the whole city was was not told the truth about the costs or the impact that this building would have on the destruction of the cultural richness of our city. Yeah. Yeah. So it's happening. Yeah. And what what is actually happening? Eldermen and, yeah. and mayors and people from building companies that worked on it have been questioned yeah. under oath wow. by yeah. a committee. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So now they're held responsible for these cost overruns. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that maybe there's a corruption in it. Yeah. Yeah. We, oh. we can't tell. We can't tell. <laughs> so that's going to be uh, interesting to see. Yeah. Because the cultural center in The Hague is, yeah, also some sort of a weird thing with a crown. And it reminds me of the bottom of the World Trade Center with these kind of well, that arch-like things. Yes. The World Trade Center was more elegant, but this is yeah. more, <laughs> this is more a decorated box. Yeah. Yeah, it's and because it's it's a box. Yeah. Yes, and on the outside and the inside, it completely lacks any atmosphere of being. But that's that's modernists. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Of our yeah. time, where we're used to that by now. No, and it's, it's not it's not yeah. supposed to be cozy. Yeah, and it's also not gonna sustain for a long time, I believe. I mean, just oh. yeah, people. Yeah. O- also, looking at the renovation of the the former Ministry of uh, Public, uh, yeah, Vrom. Um, yeah. The box. 
I'm not sure who originally designed it, but it was redesigned by OMA. Yeah, Hoogstad Weber Schulze yeah. designed it. Yeah, and it was it was at the time when it was built, it was sold as a transparent ministry. Yeah, and transparency is what our politics is, and that's why it should the building should be transparent also. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's kind of a greenhouse, and I I've heard that it is an extremely extremely unpopular building. It for people to work in I've right now after renovation. Yeah, I've been I've been in with with a friend of mine who lives there and who who did the action committee of the people <laughs> who live <laughs> against it, and it's 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 completely crazy, because the whole idea is that y- you you combine three ministries in one building, so not everybody yeah. has an its its own room because there are no rooms except for toilets. And not everyone in one has its own table because everybody, yeah. one, everybody who gets in rushes to a table and more or less puts his whole shit on that table. So that table is for that day, his table. But yeah. if you don't <laughs> get a table, you have to be in the canteen or you should go up to the roof terrace where there are, uh, is, are small lounge seats. And then yeah. you should find yourself your own lounge seat and sit there with your with your laptop computer with a battery half down <laughs> and do your fucking job <laughs> it's it's appalling and when we walk there because it's it's open space so everybody meets there and if you have a meeting a normal meeting they all sit there around the table but this is the ministry of foreign affairs and if we I walk there I can listen to what they speak of on the ministry of foreign affairs yeah. The, which is not transparent, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It could be sensitive as well, right? I mean, sensitive information which is being yes. discussed. Yeah. Yes, Yeah, yeah. That's not uh, very you functional. F- you feel like being a voyeur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I can imagine. It's, it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to... Uh, it was extremely expensive because yeah. that building cost 180 million uh, euro but the building was already there. So it was just a refurbishment of the building. Yeah, yeah, which is an e- enormous amount of money. You could build yes. a beautif- very beautiful traditional student campus for it, for example, I can imagine. Yeah, even a ministry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on to just a couple of, of loose questions about the Netherlands in relation to modernism. I'm very curious for So you have written a lot about the corporatism in post-war Holland, where... There was a massive housing crisis after the war. There w- we needed a lot of houses, and they were building a lot. Uh, but this was all done, yeah, by housing associations. And yes. could you d- describe it how this influenced Dutch architecture? I would say it's a it's a typical example of what happened to social democracy in our country, maybe in Western Europe. The whole idea of of housing corporations is extremely elegant and nice because the idea is that you have people who, who don't have a lot of money and cannot build their own house. They just rent a house. And as renters, they form a corporation. As And as renters, they uh, decide upon, the let's say, the money to keep those buildings up and build new houses. Yeah. That more or less ended in the 50s when the social democrats were in charge of uh, directing the, the rebuilding of our country. And somewhere it's the whole idea that the renters were also responsible for the maintaining the houses and, and build new houses was changed into a more corporal, corporate idea that you would have a, a foundation that uh, simply uh, does the decisions and the organization of renters would just discuss uh, all kind of things that don't really matter. And at that time, that was the idea that the social democracy more or less invented the idea of comfort. And they, because when you address things for the working class top down and you take care of their comfort, giving them a car, a holiday, television set, a school, and medical insurance. The idea was that uh, if you would do that, you would take away the, the, the main concerns of the people themselves, and you would um, end up in paradise. Maybe the same paradise as the 
socialist countries at that time promoted. I'm not sure. Yeah. And the whole idea is that if you do things top down, that you have a very great responsibility. And it turned out in in our in our times that that was uh, responsibility wasn't met, and um, it ended up in a complete mess where there is no spatial planning anymore. There's no idea of addressing housing shortage or the housing costs or the energy costs of the people that uh, live in those houses. So I think if you end up with a mess because you took responsibilities that you cannot address, there is a... You need need to revolutionize something on one way to to get it working again. Yeah. And um, as we speak, I think we are in a huge a crisis, not only a financial crisis, but also a geopolitical crisis and a crisis on, on deposits and a crisis on shortage. And it's a very disturbing time. Yeah, yeah. What is what is the the way how we should think about solving these problems now? Like instead of going top down, like regarding myself, I really believe in... Uh, incentives where skin in the game is a central factor so making sure that people who make decisions have some skin in the game but also the people who are dependent on it have skin in the game so for example making sure that people who make decisions can also bear the consequences if it go wrong and that the people also can profit of choices they make for example if you want to People should be uh, allowed to, for example, to top up their house with some stories. Um, But then that should not be a top-down program, but they should be able to do it themselves so they can actually reap the benefits. Uh, But then there should also still be some kind of guideline to make sure that it doesn't become a... The city doesn't become a Frankenstein town. Um. I I don't believe in that. Because if you you give the... uh, the, uh, Groningen tried that in, in in the 90s with terrible results Um, and um, if you build an extra flat on top of your own house yeah uh, first thing you should do is is to ask your neighbors uh, what they think of it yeah yeah because it's their it's their view yeah it's what's blocking their view or blocking the sunlight or whatever yeah and i think it's it's first the police the politics in a city are just there just to keep everybody happy and doing yeah. his own thing without disturbing the other. So the city should take care uh, of the problems that could arouse when people just yeah. Yeah. do whatever they like. Yeah, I was thinking of the street votes principle. There's one mechanism that streets can vote for a principle and that they can uh, together decide if they want to do something in the street, yes or no, which would make it a bit more a little bit more decentral but of course it would not be taken care of by the by the city but i feel that cities are also failing uh cities ways, cities yeah. are failing and the whole idea of that the city or the let's say the congress is voted for every four years is a yeah. ridiculous idea because in four years they don't listen to the people who voted for them yeah. so th- the idea of a representational democracy is broke yeah. and I think the city is in the first place of the people who live there yeah. and, and not from the people that are more or less chosen to represent them in a meeting yeah. that is the city council. Yeah. And I think it's f- very difficult to organize it and there are various interesting ways like a burger forum and those forms um, that more or less address these problems. But yeah. it's... Um, Let's say to the world of developers and building companies, this is a very hostile movement because it makes it completely uncertain and uncontrollable. And uh, having a handful of representatives every four years is a very neat way where the building companies know how to exploit them. Yeah, difficult. Um, Yeah, and I, I think maybe because here I've had some guests part of the architectural uprising in Norway, uh, Sweden, where people have said enough is enough and they kind of created groups, hundreds of thousands of people strong, organizing themselves. 
Um, do you think such a thing could help here? And because in some, I think in Sweden, in Gothenburg, it's it it has already helped. Local politicians there have embraced a different kind of building. Perhaps that that's not might not even be enough, but it, it still is a step in the right direction. But what do you think? Well, my 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 first reaction would be that our movement, being in Norway, Sweden, uh, Finland, uh, or wherever, our movement is completely a, a neat, decent, modest movement. Yeah. And although we have a tremendous amount of people who read our art- articles and sympathize with them yeah. in all those countries let's say next to the mainstream media from architectural magazines or whatever yeah. all those people symp- sympathize with it and all those people have only the power within their reach to change things yeah and it's completely indecent and wrong that the representatives of those all those people yeah in being a city council or a house of parliament or a congress or a senate whatever wherever yeah don't do anything yeah. so um yeah it will come to a clash early sooner yeah. or later and nobody wants that and no. nobody wants to be in a clash but no. if you don't listen if you just l- stay looking at the other direction it's it's completely yeah. wrong yeah and I think we see this in a lot more places <laughs> in the European Union, in a lot of other fields of politics. But uh, yeah, let's and not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm amazed how ma- the amount of uh, on the amount of patience the uh, architecture abroad has. Yeah. And because uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're they're still. It's I mean, appalling. They they make they make uh, jokes and sometimes sneers, but they're still decent people. Polite. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely decent people. Yeah, yeah, because their demands are also very decent, and it's all, and that's the whole thing about this movement, about everything. Like, everybody just wants better conditions for people, and it's not something you can be against. Because if you want, if you don't want good conditions for people, uh, where people can thrive, where people uh, are happy, then you're anti-human in a way. And so, yeah. And in in every city, you have tens of projects, and just give. Fifty percent of those projects a chance and do it a different way. Yeah, let's see what it sounds like. It's yeah, <laughs> it's very modest. Fully agree. Maybe maybe switch back. It's a bit uh, clumsy, but I still re- really want to ask it um, because the Netherlands is very well known for modernist firms like MVRDV, OMA, the super Dutch architecture from some time back, and the Dutch also had a very important role at the Bauhaus with. People like Theo van Doesburg, Gerrit Rietveld, Paul Citroen, Lotte Stambeze. Um, it almost seems as if the Netherlands is a perfect breeding ground for modernist thought, architecture. And do you think that is so? And if that is the case, why is it so? Um, Calvinism? A, <laughs> when, when I was in, in, in school, when I was 16, my hobby would be Gerrit Rietveld. And... Um, when we uh, started office and we had no work, we published a book on how to build Rietveld furniture oh, yeah. for yourself. And it's still being published and it's still uh, we still add some furniture now and then. And um, so it's a hobby. And um, yeah. what I like a lot, uh, I think that, that furniture is a- extremely interesting and uh, beautiful. And yeah. the history of the let's say the avant-garde from the 20s is very very disturbing and it's uh, it's also a history that has been canonized by uh, art historians into something completely different and what we wanted to do with the, that book on, on making retail furniture is that we had the idea that if you make a chair in, in, in on the same way Rietveld did in the 20s you would appreciate its form and its uh, color more than if you just uh, see it in a museum and yeah. or you see it in a very snobbish shop for thousands of fl- uh, euros. And making that, that furniture for yourself makes it, what let's say, what it is. It's a chair, it's a table, it's whatever. And if you have a more proper look on what happened on the, in the 20s with uh, Van Doesburg and Rietveld and Van Eesteren 
and how they published their work and how they fought among them. It's a very disturbing and not a very beautiful world. And the it's very good of this time that there are publications that go more deeply into their, let's say, the iconic status those designers have got in the last century. Yeah. And I think it should be broken down into what it actually is. And it's not. It's still open for interpretation. It's still open for additional material from historic point of view. And it doesn't change the qualities of their work. It doesn't change the qualities of their furniture or their paintings or their murals or yeah. their po poems. But it adds to the, let's say, the, the way it was idealized from the 40s on. And yeah. I think it's good to tear that down. Yeah, yeah. Because what, what was so disturbing, you find? Van Doesburg was a very ambitious guy for himself. Mm -hmm. And he, he used a lot of other people in order to achieve his personal goals. Mm -hmm. In a way that is not very nice. Not very ethical. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. And uh, I'm not saying that everybody should be an, a very good designer as well as a nice father, as well as an, a good husband, as well as a, a nice person. But you can also criticize people because they have so little ambition. And if your only ambition is to get to get to 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 be, let's say, an, an, an artist that will not be for in the history books, I think that's too thin. Yeah. And if you actually read. What, what kind of theoretical luggage van Doesburg brought as being the luggage of the style for Mondrian, Isfeld yeah. and others, I would say it's amazingly thin. Yeah. It's not much. Yeah. <laughs> it does, uh, his paintings are nice. It doesn't, it's, and, and some of him, his poems are, and uh, some of his outrageous things he wrote are, are nice, but uh, no. Yeah, it's not enough. And and all this was at the basis of this institute that has created an architectural school of thought which has spread over the entire world, which is also a colonial thing you could see because it's very European <laughs> and it's uh, being replicated everywhere over the world without any hesitation or second thoughts. Yeah, but uh, it's idealized in a preposterous way. And I think I think Rietveld, uh, Rietveld uh, when Theo, Theodore Brown, his book on Rietveld in 1957, Rietveld died in 1964, so he was still alive, and uh, he had uh, conversations with him about his work to make, to, uh, to let's say, to, to make his oeuvre complete in the back of the book. Uh, Rietveld left out certain buildings, and he said those buildings were never built. Or he said some buildings, no, that one was burnt in the war. That was not the case, mm. because he didn't want that Theodore Brown visited the building and saw that he tried something completely different, <laughs> and it's still there. And we did a publication on the on on Rietveld's works where we included these buildings because we we checked them all. Wow! Yeah. And the the fun is that if you if your the variety in your work, what you've tried, is a more. Um, is 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 less easy to tell than just the idea of the red blue chair and the Schröderhuis and the painting by Mondrian, but it's more complicated. Yeah. Then it's more interesting because it's a more complicated story. Yeah, everybody yeah. likes complicated stories. Yeah, and uh, have you read the Making Dystopia by James Stevens Curl? Yeah, yeah, it's also very uh, partly, partly. Yeah, <laughs> I've uh, struggled through, but it's uh, yeah. But it's uh, I. Yeah, I wasn't aware of, of the... For me, the most shocking thing was the also the canonization and how a certain image is given. I wasn't aware of... Because I think he's, of course, an architectural historian. He has read everything. He, he knows how it is canonized. I wasn't... Yeah. So perhaps moving to some final questions. Do you see things changing in the architectural landscape at the moment? And if so, what? Um like every everything else in our society it's polarizing and what i see is that in a country without 
without the tradition of uh, economic planning, building companies are just building whatever they can sell on the most popular plots. And that's completely against the tradition we, our country, has built upon in the last 150 years, let's say from the 19, early, from mid 19th century on. Because from mid 19th, 19th century on, it, it was a, an economic planning and spatial planning of extensions or new towns in a small country. Yeah. And what happens now is that you, that every project is a, a business case on its own. And there's no relation whatsoever between the business case on a on, on a corner of a street and the rest of the street. And if the, the business case on that particular moment for this particular house is, is that strong, you can build a tower. And if it's not strong, you don't build anything. So yeah. it's it's completely hysterical. And it's amazing that all those people that are depending on on let's say the building activities don't organize themselves and do something terrible <laughs> in order <laughs> in order to change it in yeah. order to to open up a sp- perspective on a very nice place where they can live because i'm not i'm i'm not convinced that the business case of every individual project will end up in a, a very nice place where you can stay for a longer period when you can uh, can yeah form a household with someone else, maybe have children, maybe have uh, a job at home. I'm not, I'm not sure. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what can we do? Yeah. What, what could people do to help this? And what, what, what movements do you see against the polarization? And what um, things do you see happening now that give you a bit of hope? If you, if you read the foreign press, you should say that the, the farmers in this country <laughs> are <laughs> able to, uh, yeah. to organize themselves and to let vote, let's say, uh, 60% of the Netherlands in favor of yeah. their interests. So if farmers can do it, I'm not sure why uh, citizens cannot do it for a, a, a nice, proper, uh, prosperous, uh, durable, sustainable urban environment. Yeah. Do you think information is also a problem? Like that, that people are stuck in a certain way of thinking or um, or is it need? Is it because I believe it's also what people read in newspapers, what people people I mean the whole uh, the the nitrogen crisis is of course a real crisis. It really affects what we're what we can build here in the Netherlands and what we can't build, but it's also being made so big because of the media uh, that we see it everywhere, we hear it everywhere, and people feel threatened by it, which allows for change. Yes, but the farmers have Caroline as a speaker for their interests, yeah. and she does it quite well. Yeah, and yeah. we only have Peter Bullhauer, which is a, a professor in Delft uh, on uh, yeah. on public housing, and he's a very well-educated, keen guy. But it's not a political movement, yeah. and there should be someone that makes this, this to a political movement. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, yeah. It sounds sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that is that fits last nice with the last thing I wanted to ask. The do, if you have hope, if there will be a paradigm shift that moves away from the banality and short term thinking, but. As you said, it's probably depending on if there's people who will rise up to channel also this frustration into a movement, into the right direction. Do you have any other messages to the public or, or things you'd like to point out? Well, returning to, uh, let's say, the avant-garde from the 20s. Yeah. And it's very, they more or less lay the foundation stone for modernism. Yes, that's true, because they they did away with lots of, let's say, perceptions of what architecture is or can, or what urban context can be. And we would call, call it now out-of-the-box thinking. And it, you can it's very nice to do out-of-the-box thinking, but you cannot think out-of-the-box for someone else. So <laughs> when you have a profession which is more or less serving other people, you should be more moderate to express yourself. But uh, what I like about the avant-garde is that it more or less 
never grew out to more than what it was. So it was a very short-lived, humble, small-scale, small-circle, enthusiast club of out-of-the-box thinkers. And yeah. on the longer term, they did some remarkable things. And they, let's say, they set up new boundaries. Modernism, as we spoke about last hour, is something yeah. else. Let's say the what came out of it, or, or what is... It's a building practice that sells itself with that small-scale avant-garde as a reference. But I think that reference is completely false because it's productivism. And productivism, being in the German Democratic Republic, in Moscow, or in China, or in Hong Kong, or in the Netherlands, productivism is wrong. Productivism is short-sighted for a problem and it's not a solution for the long term and the tradition of the yeah. dutch city being the the 14th century core or the, the the early 20th century extension is always long term and that should be the that should be the reference yeah thank you for a beautiful interview it was a yeah. privilege thank yeah. you Thank you for listening to another episode of The Aesthetic City Podcast. You can find more information about Scala Architects on their website, which I have included in the podcast description. For the Dutch listeners, their website contains a number of interesting blog posts and publications, which you will probably find interesting. If you like our content and want to support what we do, you can support us in various ways. The easiest way is to give this podcast a favorable review. Another way to support this podcast is to share it with colleagues and friends. You can also follow us on Twitter, subscribe to our YouTube channel or our Substack newsletter. And finally, the ultimate way to support The Aesthetic City is to become a patron. Find the Patreon link in the description. For more information about this platform, visit theaestheticcity.com. Thank you until next time.